Welcome to the Nine Marks Ministries Leadership Interview and Seminar Series. This series is dedicated to equipping and encouraging church leaders and congregations in the application of biblical principles in the local church. Sponsored by Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., the Nine Marks Ministries Interview and Seminar Series features in-depth discussions with and presentations by pastors, theologians, and church leaders from around the world. After the interview, please listen for more information about Nine Marks Ministries and its mission for local church health. Robert Charles, where are you from? <laughs> I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the city so you're of actually, champions. You're actually from <laughs> Pittsburgh? Yes, I am. Oh, I don't know. I was born in Southside uh, Hospital in Pittsburgh there, Mark, but, and Robert Charles is on my birth certificate, but my parents called me R.C. from the day they really? brought me home from the hospital because my grandfather was known by his initials, huh. R.C. Yeah. And so were you brought up in a Christian family? Nominal Christian family. Actually, my grandparents were strong Methodist Christians, and I was baptized in the Methodist church. But in my father's later years, he certainly became much more deeply committed through his uh, terminal illness mm-hmm. is really what uh, uh, brought that to the line. My mother came to the, the Lord also, but we came up. We were we were in the most liberal church in uh, in the Presbyterian Pittsburgh. Wow. We grew up in under that. Uh, and you became a Christian when? How would you talk about that? I, I became a Christian in uh, college, my first week of college, at the end of freshman orientation week. My buddy and I, who had played baseball together and in, in, in high school, were rooming together and. We were going to break rules first week. We were, we were going out to go drinking, which was a dry campus, and we were going to another town and got to my parking lot and reached in my pocket and realized I was out of cigarettes. And So we both went back into the dorm to, where the cigarette machine was, and I put my quarter in for my luckies. And there was a fellow sitting there at the table and invited us to sit down and start asking us questions. He was a Christian. And... He told us about Christ, and that was the night I, I came to faith. And I wasn't seeking Jesus; I was seeking cigarettes. But I found now, Jesus. <laughs> R.C., you are such a phenomenally uh, thoughtful person. Why did you believe that when this guy told you this? Why did I believe it? Well, I mean, you know, theologically, he, because of theologically, Christ, well, what was going on? First place, all my life I had been uh, a, a type of person who asked why. Mm-hmm. And my father had died uh, uh, the previous year of this, okay. and he was the most important figure in my life. What had he done uh, while you were growing up? Uh, he was, uh, well, he was in World War II, uh, was away from home for three years. But he was, a, he was the president of Pittsburgh's largest corporate bankruptcy accounting firm. Okay. And so he was into... So he was in business. He was in business. When he died, you know, my world fell apart. And I was angry at God. I, if you would have asked me, did I believe in God? I would have said, yes. If you would have asked me, did I believe Jesus was the Son of God? I would have said, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. I believed all that stuff, but I had no personal faith or anything like that. And when I met this fella uh, in the uh, uh, dormitory uh, of the college, he talked to me like he knew Jesus personally. I never, ever in my life met anybody like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and you'd been going to the Methodist Church or Presbyterian Church by that By that time, I'm going to the Presbyterian okay. Church. And the, uh, <clears throat> he, he didn't give me a presentation of the gospel or anything like that. Uh, he talked about the wisdom of God, and he quoted a verse from Ecclesiastes. And I, I, I think I'm the first person, the only person in the history of the church to be converted by this verse. <laughs> so the tree falls in the forest, and where it falls, there it lies. <laughs> he quoted that to me, and and I saw myself as a fallen tree that was lying there, inert, corrupt, rotting, going nowhere but to death. And uh, I was overwhelmed by it. And went to my room. I, I didn't, you know, raise my hand, sign a page, or pray a sinner's prayer, any of that stuff. I I just went to my room and. Uh, and felt an overwhelming conviction of my sin. And I confessed my sin before God and experienced uh, uh, my salvation in terms of an intense awareness of forgiveness. Hmm. But I was biblically illiterate, theologically illiterate. I didn't understand any of those things. 
That's one of the things I say when, when I, when I uh, argue so strenuously for the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that it's not the doctrine that justifies us. You know, it's absolutely essential that we preach that doctrine. I had no idea what the doctrine of justification by faith meant. I didn't know what the word meant. But I was like the man who went up to the temple to pray, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Hmm. What, what happened to your friend? Did he stay and listen he to that same presentation? He stayed and listened, and, and, and it's funny, that night we both wrote our girlfriends uh, who were at different schools and told them that we'd become Christians. And in the morning, he completely repudiated it. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And then I wrote a novel called Johnny Come Home was its original title, basically about uh, our disparate lives from that critical moment, which he loved. I mean, he just couldn't get over it that I would take the time to write a novel. Okay, now if people are listening to this and their, their curiosity has peaked, is that in print right now? No, it's out of print. Okay. What's it called, though, if they want to go find it on Well, Amazon first or? it was titled Johnny Come Home, then it was reprinted as uh, uh, My Brother's, Thy Brother's Keeper. Okay. But now your life, then, I take it, you were at Westminster College? That's right. And where is that? Pennsylvania, uh, western, northwestern Pennsylvania. Okay. And you were majoring in what? Well, at the time, I had declared initially to be a, a history major, and that lasted one semester when I almost flunked out of history. <laughs> <laughs> then I uh, changed to a Bible major after my conversion, and then I changed to a philosophy major. Huh. Because I had, like, a second conversion experience in a philosophy classroom. Okay, go ahead. I think I've heard this, but I want to hear this one again. Well, my professor, at that time, through the lottery of the college, you know, they assigned uh, 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 faculty advisors. And they had uh, four or five or six professors in the Bible department, but a very small philosophy department, only one man in it. But that man who had his Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania also had a master's degree in theology from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And he was reformed in his thinking, a very godly man. And through the you know, providence of the lottery, I happened to get assigned to him. Well, first year you're required to take introduction to the Old Testament, introduction to the New Testament. And since there were too many students to fill all of, for the professors in the Bible department to fill all of the uh, places, uh, I happened again through the draw, get him as my primary instructor in introducing me to the Bible, Professor of Old Testament and New Testament. And so because I liked him, I took Introduction to Philosophy for the first time. And that was horrible. I mean, the professor was pretty dry, actually. In the first day of class, we're talking about Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding. I know what was going on. And the second day, we're reading essays from Kant, and I didn't, still didn't know what was. So I was bored to death. All I wanted to do was read the Bible. So I'd sit in the back of the room, and I... I would hide behind my notebook. I would re be reading Billy Graham's sermons. Really? <laughs> yes. I said, all I wanted to know was the Bible. I didn't want any of this secular stuff. And then one day, he began to lecture on Augustine hmm. and on Augustine's view of creation. And despite myself, I got, in, I got wrapped in my attention to what was going on. And he talked about the divine imperative and the way in which... Uh, God created the universe. And it was an explosive moment, a defining moment in my life, just as my conversion to Christ had been. This was like a conversion to the Father. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I had this uh, exponential, uh, ex explosive understanding of the majesty of God mm -hmm. in that classroom. And I thought, wow. You know. I went right downstairs and changed my major. I said, I have to. If this is what's going to happen, I'm going to follow this all the way. So I did. And you, you kept that in throughout your undergraduate years. So you had a philosophy major. Yeah, I was a philosophy major. And, but then you went to seminary. And I went, well, actually, at the end of my, well, towards the end of my senior year, I got married at the end of my junior year. And in my senior and year. And where did you meet your lovely wife? Oh, uh, I met her on the playground at uh, an elementary school when I was in second grade, and she was in third grade. <laughs> she literally ran into me. We were racing around the school, and she ran right into me and knocked me down. And, uh, and then you knew she was a woman for you. Well, I didn't know that until eighth grade. <laughs> and that's when I bet of one of my buddies that I would marry her. And we went together for eight years. And then we got married at the end of my junior year. She was a year ahead of me. so we Was she at the same college? No, it was a different yeah, college. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> uh, anyway... Uh, 
at the end of my, my senior year, I had applied to go uh, to Europe uh, to do doctoral work in philosophy. And I'm, I'm not even sure all the reasons why, but at the last minute I decided, you know, I could al- always do that, but first I ought to get the background I needed, I wanted in theology. Yeah. And uh, so I decided to go to seminary first. And when I went to seminary. And that was in what, 57, 58? No, that was in 1961. 61. 61, I entered seminary. Okay. And I took an entrance exam in philosophy and got into a, uh, an advanced uh, level of study of philosophy. So I continued my study of philosophy while I was in seminary. And you went to Pittsburgh Seminary? Yes. Where is, is that where Warfield was before he went to Princeton? Not exactly. He was at Allegheny. No, actually, the, you see, there Folded were... Folded in or something? Well, actually, he had... There were two Presbyterian seminaries in Pittsburgh. Okay. One, one was Pittsburgh. One was Western Seminary. Western. And at one time, you're right, see, Warfield had been there. But by the time of the 50s in the 20th century, Western was the seminary for the liberal church, and Xenia was the old United Presbyterian Church. It was, it was the most conservative Presbyterian seminary. And they merged. After the two denominations merged, mm-hmm. then the two seminaries merged. And so I was one of the first, first classes to go through that merged faculty, and they came up with a whole new curriculum. And, mm-hmm. But it was basically hostile to Reformed Orthodox. And, but when you, when you entered seminary, were you already Reformed and Orthodox? Mm, no, I was evangelical, uh-huh. and I had been exposed to Reformed theology pretty heavily by my professor. The one at Westminster College? Yes, but I was unconvinced. Okay. He was uh, Dewey Veridian and, uh, you know, presuppositionalist apologetics. Now, that he convinced me of. I wrote my uh, senior philosophy paper on a critique of the classical arguments for the existence of God. Mm. <laughs> we'll come back to that maybe in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. but then that all changed in seminary. Yeah. But so in seminary... But I didn't become a Calvinist until seminary. And how did that happen in seminary? Well, uh, certainly largely through the influence of Dr. John Gerstner, but it, the uh, 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 the final uh, coup de grace came when I had a course in Edwards. Hmm. And it was studying the freedom of the will that... I couldn't escape. I couldn't mm-hmm. escape Romans Romans nine. And so, how did your wife deal with that change in your theology? Did she just come right along? Yeah, she came right along. Because I, I do hear sometimes of young seminarians who they right. you know they discover the truth of God's sovereignty, and it causes troubles at home. Oh yeah, no, I didn't have any of that problem at all. She really deferred to me when it came to the theological. Life. So then, uh, all this time, were you under care of a, a UPC USA Presbytery? Yes. Okay. And then you graduated with your BD, I guess, yes. in what, 66 or something, 65? Uh, 64. 64. And then did you go right from there to do your doctoral work? I went straight to Amsterdam. Okay. Right. And, yeah. and why Amsterdam? Well, again, <laughs> I had a tendency to change my mind last minute. I was so tired of school. I always hated school from the no. time I was in first grade. No. And, uh, <clears throat> and what, we'd now been married for four years. We had a child... And during the first four years that we were married, I had never made more than $2,000. Mm. And I was getting tired of living on uh, peanut butter, literally, and mm. bologna sandwiches and stuff. And uh, I said, I need a job <laughs> if I'm going to su- support my family. So I met with uh, one of the officials from a neighboring presbytery. And uh, in the meantime, Gerstner had been putting heat on me to go on to graduate school, but I didn't want to do it. You know, I said, I had enough of this, so I want to go out and make a living. And I go to visit this uh, stated clerk of this adjoining presbytery, and he told me about a couple of opportunities that were there. There were, there were two little country churches uh, in northwestern Pennsylvania that were without a pastor. And they were what were called a yoked parish, mm-hmm. where one minister would be the pastor of both of them. And he said, you know, if you really want to do this, and he said, I think we could probably, um, you know, make it possible for you to become the pastor of that uh, yoked thing. I, I had been a student pastor my senior year in seminary in a little Hungarian refugee church in a mill town, you know, mm. and, that, and I enjoyed that. And, uh, <clears throat> and but while we're having this conversation, he says, but I really don't think you ought to do it. He says, I think you need to go on for more education and into a teaching thing. 
Well, I just came out of the blue. I don't know how he knew anything about that or what he thought of me. And so I I went the next day and met with uh, Gerstner again. I said, okay. I said, I'm go- I'll go. But if I'm going, I want to go to the best place I can possibly go. Where's that? And he said, well, right now the best place is uh, under Berkauer in uh, in uh, in Holland. And I said, no. I said, I mean, where's the best place I can go? Can go no. where they speak English. <laughs> no. Oh, you won't have any trouble with that. He said. You know, so uh, he wrote a letter to Burkhardt. That's all that happened. He wrote a letter to Burkhardt, and Burkhardt said, "Come on over." So uh, my wife was out of town, and uh, my next door neighbor was a travel agent, and I talked to her and said, "Can you book us on a ship to Holland?" This was like in April and of '64, and. We sailed the first of May, sold everything we had, and when I told my wife when she comes, I said, "Guess where we're going?" She said, "Where?" <laughs> I told her. <laughs> she, she said, "Fine," because we had it in our wedding rings, you know. We had it engraved, and uh, with it all goes. You know, I said, "Your God, my God; your people, my people." That was in our wedding ring, so well, we went. Wow. So, uh, how was she with moving to the Holland? Oh. It was fine until we got First there. First of all, so many Dutch people speak English. Yeah, but not where we were. We were uh, the big at that time. At the time we went there, I don't know if it's still true. Holland, to my surprise, was the most densely populated uh, land in the world. Oh yeah, it is. And they had a severe housing problem, mm-hmm. where people would have to wait ten, twelve years to get an apartment, and the only housing that would be available to Belgian foreigners were uh, high price stuff out in the in the suburbs, deeply out away from the cities, where maybe you could get a room in somebody's house that would be willing to you know give give it to a foreigner for an exaggerated sum. Hmm. So we ended up living out in you know about 25 miles from and and we lived with people who didn't speak English. And you did your work on what? I did my work on what? I mean, we didn't. It wasn't like the British system where you go in there and get a, uh, a, all right, a, a all subject right. right away. I mean, in fact, I had a guy come to visit me. He was one of my buddies in seminary, and he was he was just enrolled in uh, Edinburgh, and he oh. came to me. He was all excited because he was working on his thesis. I said, "Gee whiz, I can't even do that for four more years." We can't oh. even talk about that. We and it's four calendar years, not academic years. It was just a totally different system. And uh, so you just get immersed in the study of your field and related fields. And we had to pass competency exams in theology, history of theology, philosophy, and history of philosophy. And all your, your exams are in Dutch? Yeah. Actually, it was, it was really funny because Burkauer, of course, was multilingual, and he was uh, quite fluent in Dutch. He would lecture in, I mean, quite fluent in English. He would lecture in Dutch, and the rest of the professors lectured in Dutch and so on. And some of them were more or less uh, fluent in English. But the uh, <clears throat> I always had the option in my orals to uh, to take the oral in English, but it never worked out that way. In fact, it would be funny because Burkhauer would ask me a question in English and I would answer him in Dutch. Because you'd have this strange phenomenon that when you, after you weren't, weren't learned a language... Thinking of it in Dutch. Yes, and I've been thinking about it in Dutch... And I wanted to make sure that I was giving him the nuances he was looking for. Mm-hmm. And so basically, uh, my all my exams were in Dutch. Hmm. Now, when when did you move back to America? Well, it was weird. I mean, I was supposed to be there for four years, and I was only there a year full, full time because my mother was dying. Uh, my My wife was pregnant. And there were all kinds of things converging. In the meantime, back at my alma mater, uh, there was a friend of mine there who was on the faculty who was at, taking a leave of absence to work on his dissertation. And so uh, they asked me to come back for one year. Is it Pittsburgh or in, Westminster College? Westminster, to come back and teach for one year there. Uh, I was reluctant to do that because actually the, that first year that I was in Holland was the most delightful year of my life, study-wise. I mean, that was one of those like, 14 hours a day at your desk where you just, no interruptions. It was like being in a monastery. Mm. 
but a glorious monastery because there was no wasted time and everything was just great. So anyway, I had to come back because my mother's dying and, and uh, sent my wife home ahead of me by six weeks, took my major oral exam in theology and then came back to the America and postponed things. And, uh, well, I got home and I wasn't home a month until my mother did die. My wife had the baby. The baby had surgery. We didn't have any money. I had this job, and it was very apparent that it was going to be very difficult to go back. And so I wrote to Burkhauer and explained all that. He wanted me to finish under Heiko Obermann, who at that time was at Harvard. <laughs> and so he wrote to Obermann, and Obermann accepted me, sort of transverse from uh, Burkhauer to Obermann. And so I enrolled at Harvard in the meantime. To put food on the table, I was able to get through a series of things. I was able to get a position teaching at Gordon College. Well, we moved to Massachusetts, and the first week we got there, Obermann ups and leaves. Go to Arizona? <laughs> no, no, he went back to Europe, to okay. Germany someplace, you know. <laughs> uh. So I said, now what do I do? So I wrote back to Burkhauer and told him what my problem was, and he had a special meeting with the faculty, and and I have to say I had done very well on my major uh, theological exam, and he was very pleased with that. And so he wrote back, and he said that uh, that the faculty had waived any further uh, classroom time, and was willing that I would continue in that program uh, <clears throat> by commuting, and so that's what I did. Uh, commuting to Europe, you know, back wow. and forth for my exams uh-huh. and stuff. But yeah. they said we can't give you any break if you do that. But I just, so it was pretty. Uh, it went on for another three years of doing that sort so of. So did you keep teaching at Gordon College? I taught there for two years. Uh-huh. And, and then I, I got a call to teach theology, to be Philip Hughes's assistant at the Conwell School in Philadelphia, uh-huh. at the Temple University there, at that reorganized seminary there. So I was mm-hmm. teaching philosophical theology there. Now, in, I, I know in 71 is when you started the Ligonier Valley Study Center. Right. So how did you get from Philadelphia out to western Pennsylvania, where Ligonier Valley is? Well, what happened was I came from Gordon College to Philadelphia. Uh, I was really a fish out of water up there in New England. I was just not happy there. And, but, I, but my dream was to be a seminary teacher anyway. Mm-hmm. And so... I was 29, and I got that appointment at the uh, on the faculty. Uh, we were there just a few months when they announced that they were merging. Yeah, Conwell and Gordon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, taking everything right back up. <laughs> just right, oh, just man. came. I said, "Oh no!" I said, "I don't want to do that," and I struggled with that. And they and they really did put a full court press on me to come back up there. But I, best and I just said, oh, "No, we're just not going to do it." So we decided. What I thought at that time, I committed academic suicide by demurring on on that. And so uh, at that time, we were offered a position in a large Presbyterian church in Ohio as a professor or a minister of of evangelism and theology. And uh, and so I did that. Well, in the the previous two, three years. At College Hill? College Hill Press, yes. In Cincinnati. And that was wonderful. We just loved it there for a couple of years we were there. And I was doing all this involvement in lay education. Now, this started in Philadelphia because I was teaching not only in the seminary, but I was teaching in the local church. And I had, you know, more students in the adult Sunday school in the local church than I had in the seminary. And they were hungrier. Hmm. I mean, these were professional people, and they really wanted to learn. And I found that I really loved that aspect of teaching, teaching the laity and mm-hmm. so on. So uh, I got to do that full time in Philadelphia. In the meantime, I had been asked. I'd been around already on the speaking circuit, mm-hmm. at least in the in the Northeast region, I'd been speaking conferences here and there and everywhere, and colleges and so on. And uh, and in Pittsburgh, they had this group called the uh, Coalition for Christian Outreach. John Guest. Oh, it's a great group. You know, yeah. and uh, and I had been working a lot with John Guest of different conferences and seminars, and these guys in Pittsburgh got together, the Young Life, the InterVarsity Coalition, they were concerned about getting more education for their staff people. They had scores of people who were working on college campuses who were college educated, 
but not seminary education. They didn't have the opportunity or the inclination to go three years to seminary, but they wanted more than what they had. So these guys really came up with the idea of creating a study center in western Pennsylvania, and they asked me to come and head it up and uh, teach. Now, how far was that from Pittsburgh? Well, I wanted it to be in Oakland, right by the University of Pittsburgh uh-huh. and Carnegie Mellon. But uh, Where there's uh, some good youth bookshops. Yes, but it just so happened that the patroness who funded the in- inauguration of this with the initial property lived out in the Ligonier Valley, 50 miles outside of Pennsylvania, out in the mountains, and she wanted it near where she lived. Well, there it is. <laughs> so that's the way it was. We're like Prince Frederick Elector of Saxony, you know. Yeah. So uh, we had a study center started out in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, 1971. And then uh, was this at all inspired by Labrie? Only to this degree that uh, when I was in teaching in college, I had not read Schaefer or any of that stuff. But when I'm teaching apologetics and philosophy, the questions that everybody were, 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 that were asking me were about this guy Schaefer. And it wasn't so much from his books. Were, they were circulating his tapes, the, the real-to-real tapes in those mm-hmm. days and so mm-hmm. on. But he was making this enormous impact among IV students and people like that. So I thought, well, I better start reading a little bit about this guy. So I did. And when it came time that these people asked me about starting this venture, Schaefer was in the United States, and he was doing a series of lectures at Covenant College, Lookout Mountain. Mm-hmm. So I had people that knew people that knew people and all that. And ended up, uh, I went down there and had an all-day meeting with uh, Dr. Schaefer, and we hit it off. And so he gave a whole lot of uh, the formative ideas for how we would proceed. And after that, he would periodically come to the study center to our home and 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 uh, took a great interest in what we were doing so in that sense he he certainly had an influence okay and the last sort of biographical question before we turn to theology how did you get from pennsylvania to florida what, what well basically there? i think it was uh down route 95 <laughs> <laughs> the same way the baseball teams get down there well it's pretty harder to do nowadays to get around uh-huh. washington to get around this city but well, actually what happened was that we were in the campus business in the 70s we had 50 some <clears> acres and we had all these itinerant students that would come in and stay for a year or six months plus we had weekend seminars for adult lady church groups and everything and and at those days i knew of 25 other study centers that had, had, had cropped up during the jesus movement mm-hmm. And uh, Labrie was at its uh, zenith and so on. And after we were there 10 or 11 years, uh, that whole movement in the culture changed. And students weren't doing that so much. Mm -hmm. And yet, in the meantime, our tape ministry had exploded nationally. Well, that's how I first, because I was born in 1960. So I'm an undergraduate at Duke in 78, 79, and friends from Coral Ridge Presbyterian are getting your tapes, and I'm, I'm learning about Augustine and Pelagius from you on tape while I'm a student at Duke. Yeah, well, see, that's what happened, yeah. and, and these tapes are going all over the place, but video and audio, and yeah. my books yeah. were starting to get out there and yeah. so on. And what happened was our, our board had a surreptitious meeting without me. <laughs> Not hostile, it wasn't yeah. a hostile yeah. take or anything like that, because our patroness di- was dying, in fact, had died. Mm-hmm. And uh, they saw a, a dismal financial future for this thing. And they said they met and three times without me. And then they came to me with a proposal, which they said up front, you have veto power over this. And they said well, they thought that the ministry would have a greater impact if we would get out of the campus business, which was killing us financially. Yeah. Overhead, maintenance, maintenance and of property that. and buildings. And they said, and and just get into the uh, educational where, where we're doing seminars, we're doing tapes, and blah, blah, blah. And they wanted to, to locate it somewhere in the southeast because being PCA, mm-hmm. the, the largest constituency that we had was in the southeast. And they had done, in the meantime, they had done a feasibility study of 20 cities. And they reduced it to three. And they, they selected them in this order. They said their number one preference was... Atlanta, mm-hmm. second, Dallas, mm-hmm. third, Orlando. At that time, Orlando didn't have any national ministries based there. Mm. 
And I, RTS didn't have a campus there then. Oh, no, yeah. no, no. But I was at the time teaching at RTS Jackson. Right. I said, well, that's fine with me, and any one of those three cities would be just wonderful as long as it wasn't Atlanta or Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really what happened. I mean, they laughed, and I said, why not Atlanta? I said, because Atlanta already has so many ministries based there, mm-hmm. A, and B, it's a perpetual parking, uh, a perpetual construction zone, mm-hmm. and it's too southern for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may think that's funny, but I was living four months a year in, already in Mississippi, yeah, and I loved that, yeah. but that was enough. I was a northern person. Yeah. And the uh, tell by the accent, right? And uh, Orlando, though it was the further further south geographically, yeah, was northern. the most northern, you know, culturally. Yeah. And Dallas was the uh, heart and center of dispensationalism. You know, I thought, why would we want to try to start a reform ministry there? I mean, uh, now one more thing in the 1970s. In 1978, about this time of year, in October of 78, you and Ed Clowney and Jim Packer got together at the Chicago airport and wrote the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. True or false? False. Okay, what did happen? What happened was that uh, that all started with a apologetics conference out in San Jose, and there were several apologists involved in that. And, it was, and actually, I had tried to get Christianity Today to sponsor a movement to defend inerrancy. This was after Harold Lenzel's Battle for the Bible came yeah. out. But they didn't want to do it. They wanted it done independent from the magazine. So I talked to some folks, and, and, and we got together, and we got a bunch of scholars together, including Packer, including uh, Ed Clowney, Schaefer, Jim Boyce, Gerstner, people like that, and started the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things that we did in that enterprise was to sponsor a leadership conference in Chicago, the Chicago Summit on Inerrancy, where we had 200 or so delegates to that. Now, the council members themselves were responsible to write the uh, affirmations and denials on inerrancy, Mm -hmm. if you recall, okay? And, uh, And we had an editorial team that included Clowney, Packer, me, and so on. What happened was, uh, at midnight, they came to me in this hotel in the Hilton in Chicago at the airport and said, would you write a working draft on this, Affirmations and Denials? So I sat there, and between midnight and 4 o'clock in the morning, I produced the working draft. And then, then we submitted that to the delegates, and they submitted changes and, and, and additions, subtractions. And then that editorial team, which included Nicole mm-hmm. and Packer, mm-hmm. Clowney, me, and I don't know who else, maybe Jim Boyce or somebody, and we polished that into the final draft of the of the of the statement. And then I wrote the commentary on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, and you've been pleased with the way that's been used. Oh yes, yeah. but you know we started that as a ten-year. Project. Uh, project, and we made it very clear at the beginning that we were going to self-destruct in a 10-year. We didn't want to create a perpetual yeah. organization. And you all did that. And that we was, did that, that was exactly great. right. Yeah. I, was, I, I was a study assistant for Nicole during the last couple of years, or during, during the middle of that, I think. Right. And I remember him talking about that and how much one of the things he respected about the organization was its desire to cease right. once its sort of three summits had gotten that done. And we did what we had set out to yeah, do. Yeah. That's great. And it had a big impact, on, particularly on a lot of seminaries, mm-hmm. where I think was very helpful. R.C., one, <clears throat> one thing that's clear from just reading your stuff, apologetics are hugely important to you. Mm-hmm. Why are apologetics so important? To me personally or just in general? Is that well, a, both. To you personally, but then also I assume they're going to be related. Well, I would say, first of all, I mean, the New Testament mandate's there, I think, and the early church thrived on the on the outreach of the of the evangelists who were also apologists, mm-hmm. and the intellectual uh, uh, response to the, the skepticism of of the Neoplatonists and so on. Now, from that, you're thinking of Paul, basically, on Mars Hill? I'm thinking of Paul, and I'm also thinking of people like Athenagoras and Justin Martyr and people like that beyond the the, uh, the apostolic uh, community. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing was that when I was, when I became a Christian and became a philosophy major, and I was going to school on a campus that had, that had a rich history of commitment to biblical orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. But like we had guys in the Bible department who had studied under Bultmann. Mm. 
and we were we were seeing Christianity trashed all across the boards on the campus situation, and Christians that I knew of who were on fire and inflamed in their heart for Christ were getting paralyzed by the skepticism that they were encountering in the classroom. And uh, and one of the things that bothered me was that I, I as a philosophy student, saw the, uh, the faulty premises of the skeptical assault on Christianity. And I thought, we shouldn't be rolling over and playing dead. But people were retreating, saying, well, I believe in my heart, but I don't have to believe in my mind, and all that sort of thing, yeah. sort of as a defense. Oh, yeah. and, and I said, no, 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 that's not honest. We have to, you know, Schaefer's motto was to give honest answers to honest questions. Well, the mm-hmm. questions ultimately weren't all that honest. But we nevertheless, I think, are called to give the question. I never believed that you could argue somebody into the kingdom of God. Yeah. But at the same time, I believe that we had a, a, a a deep responsibility to give a rational defense for the truth claims of Christianity. And because it works as, a, as important in pre-evangelism, we don't ask people to take a leap into the dark. We ask mm-hmm. them to come out of the dark mm-hmm. and that uh, to, show, to, to, to give a playing field where Christianity at least has intellectual respectability in the marketplace. But more importantly, for shoring up the Christian in his uh, his experience. So, be, I mean, if, uh, instead of being paralyzed, mm-hmm. that uh, that they can then become articulate, and knowledgeable, and able to give the reason for the hope that was within them. Mm. And so, First Peter three. Yes, that was always a part of my uh, concern from day one, and 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 certainly my background of philosophy. Mm-hmm. strongly fueled that. Let me ask you about some particular authors that some of our listeners uh, may read, and you could just give a quick summary of how you think they're important or encourage them to read. Jonathan Edwards. Oh, oh, that's the, as far as American authors, that's number one. And why is he so important? Why should a pastor listening to this, why should he read Jonathan Edwards? Well, if he wants to know how to preach, it's the best source he can go to. If he wants to know how to think, it's the best source he can go to. <laughs> Freedom of the will was helpful in your own. Well, freedom of the will is what okay. persuaded me of the Reformed doctrine. But that's oh. not the only thing that Edwards had produced, of course. Encyclopedia Britannica called him the, the, the most brilliant uh, theologian and thinker that America has ever produced. And I mm-hmm. don't think that that's an exaggerated assessment. Uh, he did a lot more than write sinners in the hands of an angry God. Mm-hmm. But, uh, in fact, the Yale series is, what, now 27 volumes? And that's only half of the uh, Edwards uh, material that's available. Uh, Edwards, Edwards also, more than any other writer, awakened me to the holiness of God, mm. to the majesty of God. Edwards was intoxicated with religious affections mm. and with a love for uh, the excellency, the sweetness of God and of Christ, like no other American author mm. before or since. What about C.S. Lewis? He's very popular as an author. What about C.S. Lewis's writings? That's funny you ask me that. Uh, C.S. Lewis. Because when people think of apologetics, honestly, R.C., if they're a pastor out there, they're probably going to think of C.S. Lewis and R.C. Sproul. Strangely enough, if they go into their Christian bookstores, those are probably the people they're going to think of. Well, I think they're going to think a lot more about C.S. Lewis than they are about me. But I'll be honest and candid with you. I love his... uh, uh, Narnia, mm-hmm. sort of his fantasy, of his literary skill was just amazing. His thinking by analogy is great. Yeah, right. And the way he clothes that then in uh, character. I, but I would say Mere Christianity is the most overrated apologetic book ever written. Mm-hmm. I think it's very poor, in fact. I think that, uh, I think that what, where C.S. Lewis had an impact was that he was respected uh, academically. academically there in England, and he's a ma- major literary force. And he was a Christian who wasn't afraid to exchange, interchange, interact with ideas with skeptics and so yeah. on, on their level as a, as a credible intellectual. That's right. But, but the way he sets forth his case, mm-hmm. I don't think is very sophisticated no. apologetically. And so after studying, I hate to say it, you know, academic apologetics, yeah. he was kind of a pop uh, yeah. guy. But amazing. Amazing impact on people. I mean, still, I still hear that Mere Christianity still sells 100,000 copies a year. Yeah. 
Okay. And I'm grateful for it. Don't sure. get me wrong. Yeah, okay. What about a very different figure of the same time, Martin Lloyd-Jones? You know, it's, it's really strange in terms of my own background that I've had almost no exposure to Lloyd-Jones. That's amazing. I know it is, except indirectly uh-huh. through Ian Murray, uh-huh. right, and whom I have a profound respect for uh-huh. and so on. And I keep saying to myself, I'm going to have to start reading more Martin Lloyd-Jones because he must be pretty good. But I, I heard him speak once. Oh, where? And, and it's funny because usually when you hear somebody speak, you forget within a week what they're talking yeah. about. Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Oh, when he did his lectures that became Preaching and Preachers. Yes. And that was while I was teaching at Conwell. Okay. So I was invited over there one night to hear one of those uh, addresses. Oh. And uh, I was really, really uh, Im- impressed by him in that particular context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, it's crazy, Mark. So then I thought of him as a preacher. Mm-hmm. And I didn't read preachers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I I've read almost no Spurgeon. Yeah. yeah. You know, most of my reading has been at the, at, at, with academic theology. Yeah. And it's it's not been, uh, and that's that's to my uh, detriment. Well, it's, a, it's the calling the Lord's given you. That's why you're able to write the books that you write. Yeah. Okay, let's let's talk about an academic there at the time, Cornelius Van Til. You knew Van Til. Well, yeah, and I, of course I had a. I had a strange relationship to Van Til. You both dedicated books to him and disagreed with him. Oh, yes. But let me tell you about Van Til the man, first of all. First of all, when I was in, in college and was exposed to all this criticism, you know. You mean liberal higher criticism Liberal of higher criticism, yeah. you know, and, and, and skepticism and so on. And I'm engaged and I don't have any money. I'm trying to look, find a way to make a couple bucks here and there, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this little tiny little publishing company on somebody's garage out in Nutley, New Jersey called Re- Presbyterian uh, Reform. Reform Publishing mm-hmm. Company, right? Mm-hmm. And my professor, that same guy that I talked to you about earlier, mm-hmm. knew, was a friend of the family. And he came to me and he says, how would you like to sell books on campus for P&R? He says, sure. I'll be a book rep for him on the campus. Mm-hmm. So he called Charlie Craig, who was then the president of Presbyterian Reform Publishing Company. And a, a couple, few days later, these boxes arrive in the dormitory room, huge boxes of books. And there's the complete works of B.B. Uh, B. Warfield. Wow. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Lorraine Bettner mm-hmm. and uh, Marcellus Kick mm-hmm. and all this um, Burkauer mm-hmm. and all this Van Til stuff. All right. I'd never heard of Van Til or Burkauer or Warfield or any of these guys. But I figure if I'm going to start selling this books, I better start reading them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I started reading them, and I really I realized pretty early that uh, uh, Van Til's a pretty sharp guy. In the meantime, my professor, who had studied at Westminster and was Van Tilian, mm-hmm. uh, every year they would have some academic uh, convocation deal at Westminster and and my professor would take me with him to Philadelphia and I'd l- listen to the old guys in the stone house and mm-hmm. uh, John, Murray. Uh, John Murray and uh, uh, Ed Young you know and Van Til and these guys and I mean I was in awe of these guys I mean, these guys were incredible and so I knew that even when I couldn't answer questions I knew there were guys who could mm-hmm. there were guys who had the same faith that I had who were at the apex of uh, the academic uh, enterprise. So that was how I was introduced to him. And uh, then I uh, went to seminary course of study under Gerstner, and Gerstner loved Van Til. He studied under Van Til, but he disagreed with him. You know. it, just for people who are listening who don't know a lot about this, in two sentences, summarize what Van Til is sort of known for in apologetics. He's known for really inventing what we call presuppositional apologetics and saying, you don't argue rationally for the existence of God. You start with the presupposition that God exists and then go from there. Like and, Al, Al Plantinga is saying these days, Alan Plantinga is saying. Yes, and, yeah. that's exactly right. And, uh, and in any case, uh, then when I was in, in teaching at, in, in uh, Gordon, Phil, at, no, Philadelphia, uh-huh. I lived right down the street from Westminster Seminary and right down the street from... Dr. Van Til. So in his later years, mm-hmm. I would have the opportunity to go to his house and his wife would give me cookies and we would talk about these things and everything. And I just found him to be an absolute prince. Did you speak Dutch with him? 
A little bit, uh-huh. but you know, uh, Om Casey, you know, he was called Uncle Uncle Casey. But in any case, we had we had those delightful times. And then when we wrote the critical book on classical apologetics, yeah. we dedicated it to uh, Van Til, yeah. even though it was a critique of Van Til. Got a letter from him, and he was very aged at that point. Mm-hmm. And you've often seen the handwriting of people who are quite elderly that it's very shaky mm-hmm. and wavy. Mm-hmm. Well, I have this note from Van Til in very shaky handwritten script in which he was so profoundly thankful that we took him that seriously to Mm. write this major critique of him. I mean, he was. He was just very genuine. He was just a great man. And he he would be down there preaching at rescue missions and stuff Mm. on his off days. Now, somebody you haven't mentioned, what about Gordon Clark? Well, he, I didn't mention because you didn't ask me about Gordon Clark. <laughs> I mean, well, there, are, there are people out there today who read Gordon Clark. I mean, yeah. they're, they're like these almost little kind of well, Clark groupies. Groupies. Well, see, presuppositions divided in half between the Vantillian variety and the axiomatic school, which is Clarkian. And Clark and, and Vantill had a major falling out at one point. And uh, Clark gives much more credence to rationality and logic than Van Til did. But you wouldn't call him an evidentialist? No, of course not. He's also a presuppositionist. I'm not an evidentialist. Evidentialists are mostly Arminian, you know. But in, I'm a classicist. But in any case, from a philosophical perspective, I would side much more with Gordon Clark than I would with Van Til. But I had much more contact with Van Til. Mm-hmm. Though I wasn't without contact with Clark either. Really? I had opportunities. He taught at Butler for years? Well, he started at Butler University in Indianapolis for a long time. But again, his assistant, when he was teaching philosophy at Butler, was that same professor that was my mentor in college. Okay, what is the professor's name? Tom Gregory. He he came, he studied under Van Til, worked under Clark, and then came and taught me. You know, so there there it was. So I was getting Clark. I mean, we used Clark's books, textbooks in college. Yeah. And, uh, From Thales to Thales to Dewey. Yeah, oh, right. yes, absolutely. Right. I've been through that ten times. But in any case, uh, he then moved to Lookout Mountain to uh, Covenant College that's in right. his latter yeah. years. And that's where I got to meet him personally, eat dinner with him. And, and we would discuss uh, my apologetics and his. And, and he knew that I was an ally in favor of rationality because this new move in modern reform thought was moving away from rationality and saw rationality as an unwarranted intrusion of uh, Aristotelian <laughs> thought and Greek categories and so on. And I mean, I get uh, roasted on that spit all the time, as you know. And, <clears throat> uh, and, and of course, I had a real ally in Gordon Clark who, uh, who, who insisted on the rational coherency of biblical Christianity. And, uh, you know, he would say in the beginning was the word. He would translate in the beginning was logic. And logic was mm-hmm. good. So, so we were real, real <laughs> partners on that. And I also believed in, you know, so the, the presu- a necessary presupposition of, of all learning is the uh, law of non-contradiction. And also the law of causality is merely a, uh, an extension uh, of the law of non-contradiction. But see, my third premise in uh, apologetics was the basic reliability of sense perception, and that used to give him apoplexy because he was so influenced by the skepticism of Hume right. that he believed that any, if, if, you, if, if you capitulated at all to empiricalism, empiricism uh-huh. all empiricism leads to skepticism according mm-hmm. to him. That's why he said the only way to get around that is to start with the existence of God in the Bible. And I'm just saying that, but so, Dr. Clark, you can't get to the Bible except through the senses. And what about uh, Thomas Reed and Scottish common sense realism? I never really studied Reed any great depth uh-huh. or Scottish realism. But basically, where I come from, apologetic, is, is the old Scottish right, realism. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, All my been... education was Dutch, but yeah. my, my genes are Scott. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's in the bloodstream. What, uh, what about Carl Henry? Uh, Carl Henry uh, was a. Uh, wait, you're getting a lot of stuff out of me here. Carl Henry was. Yeah, a, we, we uh, was, was, a, was another one of my champions and heroes again while I was in seminary because in seminary, even though I had Gerstner there and I had Van Til in the background and reading these guys from Westminster and Burkow and these people, 
I mean, I was really exposed to an onslaught of critical uh, mm -hmm. thinking where biblical orthodoxy was not just disagreed with, it was openly mocked. Mm -hmm. And there was an open hostility in the classroom, which is very, very hard. Uh, particularly if you come out of a philosophy background and, and, and you're trying to be an honest, uh, intellectually oriented Christian, to have this... Uh, Baggage being, if you believed in the Bible, you were a backwoods uh, obscurantist, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, while I was there, I mean, one of our lifelines was Christianity Today. Mm -hmm. Under Carl Henry's editorship. Under Carl Henry's editorship. Boy, oh boy. It was a great magazine. Oh, it was terrific. And you'd get that current religious thought page. Mm -hmm. Burke Howard Burke wrote, wrote it. That's right. John Montgomery wrote for yeah. it, you oh. know. Ad Leach wrote for it. That's right. I mean, it was... It, Roger Nicole. Roger Nicole. It was great. I mean, and for those of us who were in the crucible yeah. of the academic and uh, critical, uh, higher critical stuff, that was uh, that was our lifeline. So, I mean, I had a profound gratitude and respect for Carl Henry, and I got to know him a little bit more in his later years, as you did, mm -hmm. uh, here in Washington. But uh, he was not a mentor of mine in the sense of yeah. uh, theological mentoring. But while, but, but while you were doing the Ligonier Valley Study Center, he was kind of wandering around from thing to thing, sort of having retired, right. and writing God, Revelation, and Authority. This right. huge, right. rambling, six-volume, yes. uh, amazing combination of really academic epistemology right. with almost headlines, commentary. I mean, did that have any effect on you or ministry that you could see, God, Revelation, and Authority, that huge thing coming out? I bought it all and read some of it. Yeah. But, uh, I think you would like the first volume. I mean, that first volume is where he lays out basically, I think, the scheme of the same way you do in philosophy and apologetics. Yeah. Well, yeah, that part. And the, the other thing, you know, one of the things that bothered me, and it didn't make me mad or anything, but we really tried to get him involved on, on in and there, see, I and know. he wouldn't do it. I know. Yeah. He Though he agreed he, entirely. He was with them. He was know, out of life, I, but he wouldn't, wouldn't get in the, in the fight, and I just couldn't understand that. Yeah, I think it's because he was involved in something else then, and he didn't, he didn't want to get... Um, it was like he, he re remained aloof from, from those of us that were in the arena at the yeah. time, and that was a really big disappointment, because I knew that wasn't where his heart was. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. So, but anyway. That was, that was strange. Um, what, you've mentioned him several times, so why don't you just tell people about John Gerstner? Uh, he was your professor at Pittsburgh. Yes. And Gerstner was um, a Ph.D. from Harvard and uh, an Edwards scholar, uh, a Scottish realist, church historian, and uh, the most, uh, the, the sharpest thinker I've ever met. Hmm. I mean, one of the, for example, when I studied with Burkhauer, uh, Burkhauer absolutely overwhelmed me with his encyclopedic knowledge. And he knew so. I mean, he, it was unbelievable. The rest of the guys in the department, Old Testament, New Testament, some new book had come out in French or something, and they'd run to him and say, did you hear that uh, Eve's Conger's written this or something? And Burkhardt already, <laughs> you know, he knew it all. He, yeah. he just had this to scope. But, you know, there are different kinds of minds. You see that in the academic world. Mm -hmm. His was encyclopedic. He had all this knowledge. But God rest him, I don't think he'd think past the end of his nose. Mm. He used to drive me nuts mm. reading uh, Burkhauer because he had this Telethia Correlatsi, you know. It was paradoxical stuff. Yeah. It was Bardian through and through, the method. And uh, and that goes back to uh, to the previous uh, generation of Dutch thinkers who who took the, the doctrine of the uh, incomprehensibility of God to mean that Ultimately, our language about God is illogical. Illogical, mm -hmm. and so they just got fuzzier and fuzzier and looser and looser. Where Gerstner had the most acute logical mind I've ever encountered in any discipline in my life. So you learned a lot about your teaching from Gerstner. Oh yes, I, th I mean I remember one time when one of the when, when some of us were involved in a discussion with ICBI, but we had the biggest hit names in in evangelical theology sitting in a room behind closed doors, you know. No television cameras, nothing. I was just having a discussion. And uh, and this 
point of theology. It, was a, it wasn't a major, it was a minor point came up, and I was moderating the thing, you know. And I said, well, what do you think? And Packer was okay, and Lynn Schaefer, okay, and, and Nicole. They all agreed on this particular sentence. And uh, I said, Dr. Kirsten, what do you think? And he says, well, if that's the way you fellows want to say it, I'm not going to quibble with you. Well, I mean, I knew him well enough to know there was something wrong here. You know, I said, come on now. What's wrong? What do you see wrong with it? He said, well, what you're saying is blank, 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 blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 10 seconds, he made us all, all look like you know, theological schoolboys. I mean, wow. he, he was absolutely right, and everybody knew it as soon as he said it. You mm-hmm. know? But I mean, he was that sharp. He was, I mean, it was, he was scary sharp. Scary, scary sharp. And if, if people are intrigued by hearing you talk about him, are there things they can read of his today? Yeah, he wasn't the greatest writer in the yeah, world. You know? Yeah, he really wasn't. He was greater. He was more. Uh, 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 he was stronger in speaking and lecturing. And we have lots of his lectures. You know, at, at uh, Ligonier, you know, his theology of the Westminster Confession and many other lectures. Uh, but his. Uh, uh, rational biblical theology of Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. I think. The Dave Coffin is going to help put together. Yeah, I think that's his most yeah. important work. Yeah. yeah. And Gerstner, uh, Gerstner was the kind of guy who, who asked no quarter and gave none. He just didn't have time to, uh, to play political correctness. Yeah. I mean, in fact, when we would have, when, when we would have dialogues with guys that were in debate with us and stuff, and we would meet with them behind closed doors, he always wanted me to carry the discussion. Because he said I was charming, you know. He said you smile, <laughs> you know. Where Gerstner went for the juggler, and he yeah. got the he got this reputation for being really, you know, hard nosed. I've listened to some of his lectures on Edwards on tape, and it's amazing. Like when he talks about Perry Miller, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he's he's fascinating in the way he just quickly goes right for the point of something. Yeah. yeah. Um, last person I wanted to ask you about Jim Boyce. I know you and, yeah. and Jim were very close. Yeah. How did you, how did you get to know him? Was it when you were in Philadelphia? Um, yeah. It's a funny thing. He he grew up right, very close to me. Uh, I went to Clareton High School in Western Pennsylvania. Our biggest rival was this. This was in the, in a steel mill town. Mm-hmm. Our biggest rival was the town right across the river. Which was McKeesport, mm-hmm. and I played football, basketball, and baseball against McKeesport. And Jim Boyce grew up in McKeesport. Now I didn't play against him because he went away to private school. <laughs> but he was a McKeesport kid, you know, and, and and we never met each other that whole time. And we had both had ties to First Church Pittsburgh. Never met each other there. It wasn't until uh, we got. To, we moved to Philadelphia, and what happened then was m- one of my best friends up at Gordon, Tim Couch, you maybe remember Tim, I don't know. He went to Stony Brook with Jim. Okay. So they were real close friends. And then Tim became my close friend, and he came to visit me in Philadelphia. He said, they had this new guy down here at uh, 10th Church. I knew Mario DeGangi, who was there before that. And uh, he said, you got to meet him. So he took me to Jim's house. That's where I met him that day. And that started a, you know, 30-year personal relationship, and we worked so many times together in so many platforms and mm-hmm. so many different places. And we, you know, we're sort of known as Oscar and Felix. And, uh, <laughs> I was, Man, it fits a little too well, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I, I was Oscar, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, anyway, Felix's sermons are great to read. If you want to read uh, some good sermons, if you're listening, James Montgomery Boyce. He, I think Daniel just came out. His sermons on Daniel yeah. just came out. But his sermons on Romans, his sermons on the Psalms, his sermons on the Minor Prophets. John, Acts. You know, that's right. They're all published, and they're just they're excellent. They're a model of what you want to do. Expositionally, I think with Scripture, it's theologically informed. Yes. It's expositional. It's just great stuff. And he, his academic credentials, Mark. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he was a uh, a Harvard Boswell. undergraduate, mm-hmm. Princeton Seminary, mm-hmm. and Basel Boswell. with Bo Rika and his right. doctoral work over there. That's right. And then he came back and went to work for uh, Carl Henry. That's right. Uh, for here a little here bit in time. Washington, yeah. uh, before he went to, yeah. to Philadelphia, yeah. he had an academic background, but he. His heart was in the pulpit. His heart was in the church. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, the great movers and shakers of the past, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, people mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. Dever, you know, uh, are guys who really have, 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 have done their homework 
become educated, and then take it to the people, mm-hmm. to the pulpit, mm-hmm. with the Amen. Word of God. That really is... Amen. Well, brother, I'm thankful for how you've done that. Thank you for this time. Thanks very much. You're more than welcome. God established the church as a display of His glory amidst a world of human sin and suffering. Sadly, we too often see that display obscured when the church follows the dictates of cultural trends and faithless methodological pragmatism. Yet we believe that the church can again convey God's splendor in local church life. To that end, Nine Marks Ministry's primary mission is to equip and encourage local churches in the application of biblical principles. You can learn more about our mission and what the Nine Marks are by visiting our website at www.ninemarks.org. On this website, you'll gain access to literature, online instruction, and audio resources. Again, the web address is www.9marks.org. You may also contact us toll-free at 888-543-1030, or write us at Nine Marks Ministries, 525 A Street Northeast, Washington, D.C., 2002. Thank you for listening and for your prayerful support.